0: You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. Um, let's pray as we open up God's Word. Lord, um... I humbly stand before this church this morning asking that your word would stand apart, that your word would penetrate hearts and situations, ways of thinking, that your word would be made real to people. And God, this morning specifically, as we talk about prayer, I pray that it would seem accessible to every single person this morning. That everyone would throw down the comparison traps thinking that they are not as spiritual as someone else. They're not qualified to pray with power. Kingdom power. I pray this morning send, they, people would sense this overarching invitation into true, daily, powerful prayer in your mighty name. Amen. This morning I want to share a message with you entitled, Taking New Ground. Taking New Ground. And as we wrap up 2017. I look forward to 2018. 2017 has been an amazing year, but I'm expecting for 2018 to be a year where we are taking new ground as individuals, as families, as a church. And I'm not not talking about ground like real estate. We're not necessarily going to be taking over any new real estate. It's more so taking spiritual ground, spiritual authority and power and breakthrough in areas of our lives that God wants to reveal to us and Make evident to us for us to go after and contend, taking new ground. And so, if you've been with us this school year, we've been emphasizing Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We've been praying that God would give us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we might grow in the knowledge of God. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. We have prayer cards out in the lobby. With Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we as a congregation, we've been praying that prayer over our lives, over our families, over our church, over our city, asking that God would just shine down upon us, give us a special grace to know him in a greater way, that we'd be more in love with him after this school year than when we started. And so, what houses this entire theme for this year is prayer. That is the conduit that Encompasses everything we're going after through which we know God is going to move. When His people humble themselves to pray, God moves. And so this morning, I want to talk about the role of prayer in our daily lives, and I want to make it accessible to every single person in this place. Prayer is not just for the ultra spiritual or for your neighbor or for your grandma. Prayer is for you. Powerful prayer. Prayer that actually sees something happen that's effective. That's what I'm talking about this morning. So I want to start by referencing Ephesians chapter, I mean, sorry, not Ephesians, James chapter 5, which will be on the screen. This is not our main text, but just consider this verse. It says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and accomplishes wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. So it says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. I want us to leave this morning with a sense of what we have available to us as a follower of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you into that. This is available to every single person in this place through daily relationship with Christ. If he is your sufficiency of access to this power, powerful prayer that sees wonderful results. I believe so many times we live oblivious to what we have available to us. We have at our disposal this powerful force. So this morning, the main idea is that prayer is the conduit by which we take new ground in this life. Prayer is is the housing or the, the, the mode in which sovereign God is chosen for his people to interact with what really matters in this world. It's prayer. It's through prayer. It's the conduit. Sadly, this is available to all people, this type of effective prayer, but it's only experienced by some. And here in James chapter 5, just as a point of clarification, you can see some some instruction for us in the area of prayer, this type of prayer, effective prayer. I'm not talking about religious obligatory prayer. I'm not talking about um, dry, passive prayer. I'm talking about effective prayer that has great power with wonderful results. He says, this is the prayer of a righteous person. So again, this is not a religious righteousness, a self-righteousness, a righteousness that you muster up in your own effort. James, fully attuned to the good news of Jesus Christ, was referring to a righteousness found in Jesus Christ alone. That's why it's accessible to all of us. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can be considered righteous, meaning right in right standing with the Father. The punishment for our sins set aside, the Father sees the perfect work of Christ in our lives. So you can be considered a righteous person. Just consider Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or demonstrated apart from the law. Meaning, following the letter of the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So every single person is in need of a Savior, and every person has access to this Savior if they'll humble themselves and place their faith in Jesus Christ they can be considered justified as in right standing with the Father. When we adopt that understanding of righteousness, you can have access to this type of prayer where, we, where we're taking new ground, where we're seeing God do the miraculous. I pray that we are a church that understands what we have before us, this is only experienced by some, sadly. Two and a half years ago, me, and my wife, and my family, my whole family, we we moved to the north side of Ames. Sold our house in Central Ames, we moved to the north side, and we purchased the house in the winter, and we moved in the winter. And so, honestly, we weren't aware of what all the property uh, had on it uh, in terms of vegetation and plants outside. We loved the house. It was a great neighborhood. We were excited about being closer, closer to the lake, Ada Hayden. Come springtime, we began to realize wow, we have all this amazing stuff in our backyard. We had some raspberry bushes, and I, and I grew up with raspberry bushes in my backyard. Just loved uh, this idea of the kids being able to go in the backyard and grab a handful of raspberries. As June came around, we began to realize oh, we have blueberries. We had two rows of blueberries. This is phenomenal. We realized our trees were, trees were blossoming and they were cherry trees. This is phenomenal. Wow. Look at all this is available to us. And then as the summer went on, we saw we, we had crab apple trees. My mom would, growing up, she would always make crab apple jam. And then as we went on, these eight foot tall weeds, which I thought were weeds, started growing on the south side of our house. I started chopping them down one day with my little hedge trimmer, and my neighbor comes running out. He says, Drew, Drew, not the sunflowers. Don't chop down the sunflowers. <laughs> I still went on to chop them off because I thought before they bloomed, they were ugly, and I didn't want them there on the south side of my house. They were eight feet tall without, without anything blooming, so I still chopped them down, but I had no idea everything that was available around me at my disposal for my enjoyment as a resource for our family, and so often Believers kind of walk around with this survival mentality on this earth, just hoping they can scrape by, not lifting up their eyes to realize all that Christ has made available to us. And so I love this passage in James chapter 5, and it's, it's the foundation for what we're talking about this morning, because he references Elijah, who is like, in our minds, the cream of the crop of men of God, of heroes of the faith, right? Right? He's referenced in the New Testament as well as as the man. He is a superhero of, of the faith. And yet what does James say? He's as human as you and I. He has the same nature as I. God, through Scripture, lowers and makes accessible to us what even the heroes of the faith had available to them. And so it is for us today we, if we'll humble ourselves, and he refers to this earnest prayer. The earnest prayer of a righteous person, which translators have a hard time translating this verse in James chapter 5. Some say fervent prayer, some say earnest, some have a hard time just, uh, translating, so they just leave it out. I, 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 as I've looked at the text, it seems to be a persistent, prevailing prayer. That type of heart whether you have this humble desperation, and I talked about that last week, that desire paves the way for true prayer. If you have a burning desperation in your heart, with humility you can see breakthrough in areas of your life that we contend for. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, a physical Bible, you should come talk to me afterwards. I love giving out Bibles, and we have them available for you if you'd like one. 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at the life of Elijah, this amazing man of God. But he was human, just like you and I. To give you context of what we're about to read, I want you to understand the paradigm that Elijah lived within. To put in context the work of Christ. Elijah lived in a dispensation or a, a paradigm where the Holy Spirit could not come and take up residence in Elijah. Elijah, this great prophet, when he spoke the word of God, when he walked in anointing, it was because the Holy Spirit would come upon him. The Holy Spirit would not come and live inside of him. We live in a better day and age. We live in a better paradigm. Amen? The Holy Spirit, as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And so we live in an, in an era, in a, in a paradigm that's so much better than what Elijah had. So you can kind I'm of, not, I'm not trying to dishonor Elijah. He plays a, an amazing role in God's grander, redemptive work. But I want, you to, I want you to understand the accessibility of what Elijah experienced and walked in. It's accessible to you as a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. You have available to you the full resources in Christ. And so here, we, we, we read in these couple chapters about Elijah's life, we see, we see some amazing feats, some amazing victories. Right? We see Elijah bring upon, through prayer, bring upon the nation of Israel, a drought to get their attention, to wake them up for three and a half years. And James referred to that. We also saw God's miraculous provision upon Elijah's life as he interacts with this widow, his miraculous provision for this widow. Elijah raises somebody from the dead. That's pretty amazing, right? But kind of the climax of Elijah's ministry is in 1 Kings chapter 18, as Elijah comes toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal, right? Maybe you're familiar with the story. If not, check it out. It's pretty epic. It's like made-for-TV epic. I mean, that's, that's how amazing the story is. But Elijah, with this boldness and this courageous spirit, just faith fixed on God, is able to stand the test before 450 prophets of Baal, prophets of the enemy, these people that were doing all sorts of horrific things in the name of their God. And Elijah, through his act of faith, God provided, burnt up the sacrifice, demonstrated that he, God, the God of Israel was the, God, the true God, ended up defeating the prophets of Baal, What's so interesting as we get into 1 Kings chapter 19 is the king of Israel at the time was King Ahab. He's married to Jezebel. Jezebel hears what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal, and she sends, she sends out this message. I don't know if it was Snapchat or a text message or somehow. She sends a message to Elijah threatening to take his life. And this is, I think, an amazing case study of human psychology. Because just think about what's just transpired. Elijah stood face to face with 450 violent, uh, venomous prophets. And yet he, and he's, he's courageous, he's full of faith, full of boldness. And yet he receives a message from afar from this woman, this queen, threatening to take his life. And what does he do? He trembles in fear. He, he flees in fear. It's fascinating. I have no idea if you had a bad experience with with some evil woman in the past or why he was so fearful of Jezebel. But for some reason, he just, he just falls into despair, desperation, saying, just take my life. My life is over. There's nothing left living for at this point. And so we find him here in 1 Kings chapter 19, a moment of desperation, which I bet you found yourself in some moment of your life. And he says, there he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. But behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake... But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. He repeats himself, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I love this encounter that Elijah has with God, and I believe through this text there's much that we can learn about powerful and effective prayer. This may catch you off guard, being this doesn't really seem like prayer that Elijah was initiating, but I want to actually propose to you a level of prayer that's available to all of us if we'll be, listening, if we'll be willing to listen. You see, this encounter with God was initiated by God himself. But I love how conversational it is. I think there's a greater level of prayer that we can experience if we'll kind of take off the facades and the, the, all the fluffy language in our prayers. I love that Elijah is so raw and honest with God. God summons Elijah into this prayer encounter by asking him a question. I think many times the, the, most, the greatest places of prayer that I find myself are places that are initiated by God if I'm willing to listen. And God asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's like him talking to his friend. I think so often we view prayer as like a, a vertical thing. But can I tell you, Holy Spirit lives in you. He's here. He's present. You can talk to him like a friend. And many times he'll drop a question in your heart. And what he's doing is he's just engaging your mind and your heart and calling you into a place of prayer. And so right away, Elijah responds, and, and he responds honestly, which I would encourage you to do the same thing. Not in a sinful way, but in an honest way. He's like, God, I feel like everyone is, is fleeing into immorality, and I've given all I have. I have nothing left to give. Nothing, no other reason to live. He's kind of desperate. He's, I would say, a little overdramatic given the circumstances. But I believe God responds to that, that type of raw honesty. And God is so gracious. He's so gracious to respond to our um, our, 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 our responses to life. Am I right? I mean, life, life can be difficult, But given the grander context and given God's perspective, many times it can seem pretty overdramatic. But I I feel like when we just pour out our hearts to God, God is so gracious to respond. It kind of reminds me of growing up, the conversations I'd have with my dad. Because I would oftentimes come to my dad and I'd say, Dad, I'm stressed out about this test or I'm stressed out about this at sports or this relationship or my girlfriend, Tanya, or whatever it was. I'd be so... I'd be so overwhelmed by whatever it was. My dad would be so patient to listen, so gracious in his response, but many times he would ask me this question. He's like, what's the worst that can happen, Drew? Almost to, an, like, to the point where it's annoying. What's the worst that can happen? And it honestly, it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I guess not, like, nothing horrible can happen. I'm probably going to continue to live through this, whatever it is, test or relationship or work situation. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, that's just like, that's the response of wisdom. And God Almighty, as we, as we talk with him, as we walk with him, as we live with him, he's so gracious to have that type of response. I want, as we look at verse 11 specifically in verse 15, I want you to catch an aspect of prayer that I believe the church often misses. Christians miss. Church big C we miss so often, and it's that prayer is meant to be a place of activation. We should come to the place of prayer or respond to God in prayer in a way that we believe that God's going to call us to do something. Prayer is not a form of Christian escapism. It's not. Prayer is not an excuse to sit on the sidelines. Okay, I'm, I'm just the, I'm the designated prayer. I'm going to sit over here and pray. A prayer is a place of activation. I feel like it's really healthy to see prayer as a place where God's going to call you to do something or call you to think differently or call you to repent of something. He's going to call you some, some change in your life or your heart and that's what God did in verse 11. It says, Elijah, go out to the mount, mount to the Lord. I want you to go to that place. was a, I'm asking you to do something. Later, it's, I want you to go back to the wilderness of Damascus. I want you to anoint um, those guys. I want you to anoint uh, Hazael. I want you to anoint Jehu. I want you to anoint Elisha. He was asking him to do something. God listens. He's so patient and gracious, and then he asks us to do something. I want us to understand that. That's why I believe, this is my hypothesis, I believe that every move of God is preceded by prayer because when we actually experience true prayer, it's a place of activation, which sends his people actually to do something. Not in our own effort. God God comes and anoints and empowers and wakes up a church to go and do something, to serve radically, to see him move in a city. And it's through us if you think of the first and second great awakening, if you think of the student volunteer movement at the the end of the 19th century, if you think of the Welsh revival at the turn of the 20th century or the Azusa Street revival, these were all revivals or moves of God that were preceded by prayer. The fruit of them was mass awakening, thousands, hundreds of thousands, now even millions of people coming to know Christ so it was very missional in, out, in output, in fruit. It was God waking up his church, calling them to do something. That should be our mindset in coming into the place of prayer. God's going give to give you something to do, even if it is internal. Even if it's, I want you to change your thinking on this. I want you to, I'm calling this out in you. And then we have this strange interaction where God tells him to stand on the mount and he sees all these mighty, mighty acts happen before his eyes, right? He sees a wind, you know, can't watch wind, but he feels a wind blow. He feels an earthquake shake. He sees a fire burning before his eyes. But he recognizes, and Elijah is willing to go along with the journey enough to discern what is happening before his eyes. And he recognizes that God's not in any of it. The wind blowing, the earth shaking, the fire blazing before his eyes. And fourthly, what happens? It's a low whisper. And he recognizes the voice of God in the midst. Elijah lived in the the paradigm where God did the powerful and the miraculous. And he heard stories of Moses having an encounter with God through fire. God coming and encompassing a mountain with a cloud and shaking the mountain. Elijah was familiar with the dramatic and the, um, the experiential in a really strong and powerful way. But Elijah was willing enough to understand that God, was, God is not a God that fits in a box. And he was willing to understand that God might reveal himself to him in a way that maybe others haven't experienced. And in that moment, God comes in a whisper. Can I tell you that God is utterly predictable in character, but so unpredictable in the ways that he reveals himself to us, in the ways in which he works in our lives. You can can depend on his faithfulness, on his goodness, on his love, on his holiness, on his mercy, on his grace. You can depend on it. You can know it's going to be there tomorrow. But what you don't know is how he's going to work in your life and how he's going to lead you and how he's going to reveal himself to you. Which excites me. He's utterly unpredictable in the ways in which he reveals himself to us and works in our lives. And finally, we get to the actual results of his prayer. Verses 15 through 18, he tells him to go and return to the wilderness of Damascus and anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu, anoint Elijah, do these things. I want you to understand that so many times the results of our prayers are bigger than our small little lives. They really are. I know many of the issues that we really bring before the Lord, they seem like they're only relevant to our lives, but can I tell you they're not. There's a ripple effect constantly in the kingdom of God. And Elijah was willing enough to recognize that. It took took some prodding and some gentle correction by the Father. You see, Elijah was convinced he was the only one. I'm the only one that's left. But God gently responded. He didn't even need to correct him. He's just like, I want you to do this, which is a demonstration to you that it's not just you. I want you to go and anoint these individuals. There's going to be, there's a plan, a redemptive story that's continuing even after you're gone. And what does he say at the very end? He says, there's 7,000 that still have not bowed their knee to Baal. This idea that you're the only one, that you're the only one seeking my face, you're the only one that's preserved yourself for my ways and my purposes, it's it's not true. God was answering his prayer, but it was in revealing to him that it's bigger than Elijah. And Elijah, I believe, did expect immediate results. And so many times, when we read a a verse like James chapter 5, That the fervent or the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We we want to make that thing, or we we want that to mean that that means immediate results. God moves immediately, but not necessarily with the results that we think, and we see that here. As God is responding and at work, but in a in a way that surpasses Elijah's generation. And goes on to Elisha's generation. And actually, Hazel, who becomes the king of Syria, does not become king of Syria for a number of years. Same with King Jehu. These men who are supposed to continue on this redemptive story do not become actually put into place for decades, until decades later. It's so much bigger than us. There's such a great freedom, and I believe a sense of significance in God's work when we can see that prayer plays that role. And If we're willing to play it, God can use us to stand in the gap for things that are so much bigger than you and I. For some of you, that may be discouraging. For me, that's encouraging because that means God's inviting me into a bigger work than just my life. I get to be a part of that. I get to be a co-labor in a work that goes so far beyond my little life. I love it. My father-in-law is is a man um, who's been a youth pastor now for over 30 years. He's like a legend and like there's no one else that's done what he's done. To continue to be a youth pastor, the youth ministry of hundreds of students, for now over 30 years, he's phenomenal. I don't know how he keeps up with these little middle schoolers, but he is the man. So for 26 years, he's been leading this missions trip to the inner city of Chicago, and And what I love about Cal, my father-in-law, is his legacy of prayer. There's so many things in youth ministry that are flashy and exciting, but still the thing that ignites his heart is when youth get excited about prayer, when they get engaged in prayer. So one of his most favorite times of the entire week is early morning prayer with a humble group of junior high and high schoolers. I love it. So he's been leading this missions trip to the inner city of Chicago for 26 years the deadliest city in America. And I think anytime we go on a short-term mission trip, every year he brings 200 students to the inner city of Chicago. I think anytime we go on a short-term mission trip, we, we like to think this is the week of revival. We are taking the city. The entire city is going to be changed after this week, which I, I love that type of faith and zeal. But And God does a lot in that moment. He does. But it's so much bigger than that one week. And I think the, the testimony of going back to the same, the same neighborhood, working with the same church for 26 years, is testament of that. That yes, in that we God accomplishes so much more than we could ever imagine. But the results may not, will maybe not be seen for years, maybe even decades to come. After going back to a, uh, the same neighborhood for 26 years, They've seen people they've ministered to as kids at their VBSs now walking with Christ in the church. Fifteen years ago, they began to see the demolition of all the high rise um, projects, housing projects, government housing projects in the south side of Chicago. This was a huge thing of breakthrough for them as they had prayed over the city specifically that God would tear down these buildings that they had been, they had walked the hallways. Me and my wife have walked the hallways of some of these projects. Many people, even the residents of these buildings would declare them as like hell on earth, just horrific situations, living uh, situations. But they'd pray specifically Isaiah 43, which is on the screen. This is what he's been praying for 26 years, my father-in-law. He says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. For 26 years, they've literally in this gymnasium of this church faced north, east, south, and west and prayed, declared that over this entire city. And It's been amazing to see and celebrate God's work through that humble act of prayer. I'm going to ask Paige to come and just come to the keys and play that song, Yes and Amen. I believe God is calling us into a year of taking new ground. It's not just a year. I believe it's a lifestyle. Because once you experience the, what, what's available to us as a follower of Jesus, you won't want to go back to anything else. But he's awakening a church to prayer. Tonight we're going to have a prayer meeting right here. And over the last three weeks, we've been emphasizing prayer for our city. And I have a whole stack of cards of people that have filled out these commitments to pray for different areas of our city. This stack excites me not because of names on cards, but in the concept of a church being awakened to their role in our city, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the right order. First, in humbling ourselves to pray, and secondly, by being activated by the Holy Spirit in obedience. And so tonight, we're gonna pray for our city. and welcome you back at six o'clock. And I'd invite you over the weeks to come to continue to drive around the neighborhoods that you signed up for and pray. Believe that God's gonna in that moment have a conversation with you. And it's not just you throwing up blind prayers to heaven. It's a conversation, a dialogue with God Almighty. I wanna end with this story. that illustrates how God wants to call us to take new ground in Jesus Christ. 1915. Five, five teenage boys were walking through the city of Springfield and they came to the White City Amusement Park, which was seen for the city, which was seen to many in the city to be a really dark place where a lot of bad things happened. A lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of illegal activity. And here are these five teenage boys, I would say the least likely to stop and do anything of significance in that moment. That's not meant to be a, I'm, I was once a teenage boy, but but these five teenage boys decided to do something different. God had been moving in their lives and in their families. And so what they did is they knelt down by the fence of the White City Amusement Park. They knelt down there in public and they prayed that God would do something in this two block radius of this amusement park, that God would use this area, this neighborhood for his glory. That there'd be a move of God that would flow from this place. Those, these are the prayers that these five young teenage boys prayed. So much time passed. God worked in their lives. They moved away from Springfield. Time passed. It wasn't until 19, well, a few years later, just a few years later, White City Amusement Park shut down. Actually then got bought out by an affiliate of the St. Louis Cardinals. So a minor league baseball team started playing there. They built a stadium. They started playing. 1949, though. The cardinals moved out, and the Assemblies of God purchased that land to be the literature printing and shipping arm of the Assemblies of God. Now today, that land is still owned by the Assemblies of God. Every single day, six tons of gospel literature is shipped from that site. Six tons every single day of gospel literature throughout the world from that very spot where these boys knelt and prayed. However many, now over a hundred years ago, over 5,300 missionaries across the globe are communicated with and and, uh, coordinated with. It's phenomenal. And what these boys were willing to do were to play a part, to see that prayer was a conduit for actual change, for actual significance in this world. And I believe God's calling us as a church into those things. We, we don't get to always see the end results, but we have to know that James chapter five is true. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and has wonderful results, accomplishes, produces great results, wonderful results that you and I can be a part of. He's calling us into it, every single person in this place. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm gonna close. I made it clear at the beginning that this is, this prayer is, ava- this type of prayer life is available to every single person. But really the starting point is first having surrendered your life to Christ. Since so I do want to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to Christ. If you're here this morning, you'd say, Drew, I want to start a relationship with Christ. Maybe you've prayed a prayer in the past, but this morning you know, you want to make things right with Christ. You want a fresh start. You want a relationship with Jesus Christ. No turning back. If that's you, if you just raise your hand in this place. You say, yeah, Drew, I want to start a relationship with Christ. Awesome. Praise God. Is there anybody else? I'm the only one looking. Is there anybody? If you raised your hand, and even if you didn't, this moment can be for you to commit your life to Christ, for his righteousness to be imparted to you. From this point on, you can be in right standing with the Father because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Pray like this. God, this morning... I choose to stop trying to live my life on my own. I surrender my life completely to you. I place my faith in your perfect work, in your sufficiency, in your ability to save me. I've tried doing life on my own, and it's always left me hanging. It's always left me falling short. And so this morning, I want all that you have for me. I want you to be Savior and Lord of my life, Master, I surrender all that I am to you. No turning back. In your precious name, Amen. Everyone would stand to their feet. I want to pray a prayer over us as a church, a prayer of faith, that God would activate us Monday morning, and just like He called Elijah into prayer, God would call you into prayer, and it would, His call, His call upon your life into prayer would be irresistible. The question he the question he imparted upon Elijah's heart was, What are you doing here, Elijah? I believe God could talk that boldly and blatantly to you. In your kitchen, in your living room, in the shower, in the car. God can call your name, call you into prayer. And I believe he can do it tomorrow morning. I'm gonna pray over us. God, this morning with a full heart, I'm believing that you're waking up a church. To a whole new level of prayer, prayer that's effective, persistent, prevailing, powerful prayer. And there are individuals here in this place who've maybe never sensed your leading or heard your voice, but I'm believing this week will be that week where they hear you calling. They'll hear the question that you'll drop into their heart. They'll sense this irresistible longing or desire to come into the place of prayer. And so I just pray that you'd let that loose upon our church right now, every individual in this place. In your mighty name, amen. Thank you so much for coming this morning. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about Life Point Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.